Hello, my name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Caitlin O'Connell Rodwell, an assistant professor in the Department of Otolaryngology uh, here at Stanford. Thanks for joining us today, Professor O'Connell Rodwell. Oh, thanks for having me, and that was a very good pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. So while most of the guests we've had on our show study worms, flies, or mice, you actually study elephants. So how did you first get involved studying elephants? Well, it wasn't a plan. It was definitely serendipity, and that sounds kind of surprising to some people because they think, oh my gosh, if you're studying elephants, you must have planned that. Mm. But I didn't. I had come from an entomology background and um, was planning my next step to go back into that world and study the period gene, which controls sound production. And um, I studied plant hoppers in Hawaii and decided to take a, a year off between master's and PhD and went to Southern Africa with my boyfriend, then now husband, decided or realized that the only way to see Africa is to volunteer in game parks and see the wildlife as not a tourist, but on the research side. And so we volunteered in different game parks, and um, very soon we got offered a three-year position to study elephants. And because I had come from a background in animal behavior and acoustics and low-frequency sound uh, propagation in particular, it was kind of uh, very much a no-brainer for me to study elephants. So I... Um, of course, have never left because that's kind of a lifetime pursuit because they're long-lived animals and it's not like being in the lab with cells and you can answer questions in hours to days to weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how that's how I started. Yeah, elephant culture doesn't grow in a dish. No. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it's like studying human culture, very similar. So your advisor in graduate school was uh, Lynette Hart, who is based out of UC Davis, but I take it that you spent much of your time actually in the field in Africa. Yes, um, I got my PhD at UC Davis, and um, before then spent three years working for the Namibian government on elephant projects, and because I had a master's, I had planned all of my studies to turn it into a PhD, so... I went back then in the summers while I was at UC Davis to continue the fieldwork and then uh, finished and came to Stanford as a postdoc. Hmm. So when you were in graduate school, you showed that elephants actually use foot stomping as well as these low frequency vocalizations called rumblings to generate seismic waveforms, by which you mean they, they actually are shaking the ground and using the shaking of the ground to communicate, maybe particularly for long distances. Can you recall the moment that this idea occurred to you or, or your colleagues that elephants might actually be talking and listening to one another uh, through the ground rather than the air? Well, yes, actually, there was an aha moment because having studied plant hoppers who, who are like uh, cicadas, but they deliver their very loud signal through their feet into the ground instead of through the air like a cicada does, they do a lot of posturing, what I call listening with their feet. And uh, when they're listening for females and trying to mate, well, in the field with elephants, 
I saw very similar things happening. They would freeze. They would position themselves in certain directions very purposefully because you'd see a whole family group, you know, 10, 20 individuals doing the same thing, lining up along an axis and then freezing, lifting one foot off the ground sometimes, sometimes pressing their trunk into the ground. It's very purposeful behavior in these whole groups. And, you know, elephants are very subtle animals. So this was striking to me over a course of maybe a year, the first year that I started studying them, but it kept happening. And then there were several times where they would be doing this and then suddenly another herd would arrive. And I would think, wow, this is exactly what the plant hoppers were doing. It's the same exact behavior. I thought there has to be something going on. They're, you know, very heavy animals and uh, very low frequency, high sound pressure level signal. And I thought maybe they're sending the signal through the ground, whether it's a purposeful or a byproduct of an airborne signal with such high sound pressure. It's like a, a mini explosion. It hits the ground and you think of the ground as an elastic medium and it creates this ripple across the surface. Well, it turns out that ripple is exactly has the same structure as the acoustic signal but traveling through the ground. Hmm. So, so what did your fellow elephant researchers think when you uh, first proposed this? I mean, I, if I were a skeptic, I might think, well, I've seen a cat stop and, you know, listen. Just because they stop, that doesn't mean they're <laughs> listening to the ground, right? So. Yes. Um, well, for some people, it was a huge relief. Like, oh my gosh, that explains everything. And for some others, uh, it was more like, well, elephants can stop and kind of be curious and uncertain. So how can you be sure of that? And surely somebody else would have figured this out long ago, um, that kind of thing. But, you know, over time and um, the data that I collected. And also, I think that uh, when you're in a culture of a certain scientific environment, and somebody pokes a hole in that membrane, you get very uncomfortable and uncertain about it. But uh, some of, uh, a few of those people actually wrote to me several years later and said, you know what, I'm finally seeing what you're talking about. And they were in a different environment, a different geological environment, and they thought maybe it had to do with that. But they were so thrilled to contact me and say, you know, I didn't see this in Amboseli but I'm here in Mozambique and I see this behavior and oh my gosh, this is amazing. Hmm. When, when you're in a certain scientific culture, you don't think about things outside that culture. And so it's sometimes difficult to propose things that aren't ingrained in that culture. So how did you go about proving to yourself and, and other people that they indeed were listening through the ground vibrating, at least in part? Well, with some difficulty, there was a lot of geophysics that had to be worked out, a lot of experiments. Again, elephants are very intelligent animals, so there's a social context to how they might respond to a signal. So first, the first challenge was to measure the signal. Is there a signal in the ground that elephants could detect if they cared to uh, when they rumble or when they mock charge? And again, if you think of the earth as a trampoline and you have this 10-ton uh, animal on on the earth running, you're going to create a huge wave. But also, more surprisingly, when they vocalize, that wave is in the ground. We measured it. It travels at a separate rate than the signal that travels in the air, and it travels at the rate that a Rayleigh wave travels, so a surface wave, usually a slower moving wave, that's the kind of wave that breaks up parking lots and does all the damage during an earthquake, where geophysicists 
are used to filtering that signal out because they're looking for P waves and trying to calculate how fast an earthquake, when the earthquake will arrive. So it's the same kind of geophysics, but um, we're talking about surface waves, and we measure that these waves are indeed being created by elephant vocalizations. Could you give a kind of rough sense of speed and scale? So like a, an acoustic vocalization through the air is going to obviously travel much faster than through the ground, but might not travel as far, whereas something through the back, through the ground will travel much slower, but will travel much farther. So is, is that right? Yeah. So, well, the physics isn't as precise as we would like it to be, or as we sometimes think. Physics, you know, that <laughs> having physics envy when you really get down into the uh, nitty gritty is not that perfect. Airborne sounds travel about three hundred forty-four meters per second, and airborne waves attenuate much quicker. So the, every doubling of distance, you lose uh, 6 dB. But with a sound that's traveling on the surface of the ground, it attenuates with every doubling of distance only 3 dB, so half that. So if there's a conservation of energy going on as the signal moves to the surface of the Earth. But also, it can travel, we measured about 250 meters per second, so it's 100 meters per second slower but it can also travel faster than an airborne wave based on depending on the environment. And that's why geophysicists always carry a sledgehammer with them because they have to measure the velocity of the ground because it's not constant like the air. Uh -huh. So once you know what that velocity is, you can search for it. And for an elephant, if it's slower like it is in the Namibian Calcrete Desert uh, where we do our field studies, that means that you could theoretically time the arrival of one versus the other signal. So like thunder and lightning, you know one of them's going to travel faster, one of them's going to travel slower, and calculate that delay. Um, we do it, and you know we can't prove that an elephant does it, but they spend a lot of time freezing and assessing their environment. So it's possible that they can figure out how far away a signal is based on that delay. So there's conservation of energy with that delay. The fact that it travels at 250 meters per second and it's a 17-meter sound wave, you do the math, and there's it's shorter. So that shorter wavelength means that you get a better phase angle and it might be easier for them to detect location. They're very good at detecting a 17-meter sound wave. If you can imagine how flat that is, but they can do it. So these are tricks that they could employ to detect that ground wave uh, with more information than the air. And then when you talk about outer distance, airborne sounds uh, refract back into the atmosphere at about 10 kilometers. There's an outer limit to how far sounds can travel in the air. And sometimes you'll get these uh, inversions where you create, like the SOFAR channel that they talk about in the ocean, where you get a, a cylindrical spreading of the sound uh, which means that it spreads in two dimensions instead of three, so you get that uh, same conservation of energy like every doubling of distance, you only lose three dB versus six. People have written about why there's dawn and dusk choruses because the sounds can travel quicker. Mm -hmm. But for elephants, in the ground, there's no theoretical outer limit for how far these sounds can travel in the ground. And so there is potentially a further distance for them to be able to communicate in the ground. Uh, but what we've been looking at is that it adds an extra modality to their communication. And that modality comes with all these other advantages of being able to localize this, potentially localize signal better, conservation of energy, 
and having their sensors spaced at much greater distances apart. So when I was talking about phase angle, if you put your front and back foot, it's about two and a half meters or so versus a half a meter between the two middle ear bones. So that means you might be able to, again, uh, facilitate localization better. Hmm. So there's, there's a lot of physical advantages, and they have the anatomy f to, to take advantage of each one of those. Yeah. So you've written a memoir about your research, although I must admit I haven't had the pleasure of reading it. The title is really striking. The book is called The Elephant Secret Sense, referring to this seismic vibrotactile sense. I mean, we have the hepatic sense. We just don't think about ourselves communicating in the vibrotactile realm, although people with hearing impairments do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's partly why I'm in the Department of Otolaryngology. <laughs> right, right. So whenever I read research about the details of how some species communicates, like the details of how a bee dance tells another one where a potential new home is, or how mice make ultrasonic songs, it has this effect on me where I can't help but empathize or anthropomorphize a bit more about the lives of these animals than I did before. And I guess I'm wondering whether it has the same effect on you and whether you think this is a, a good thing or a bad thing in terms of helping you observe and understand what's going on within the quite alien culture and behavior of elephants. Seeing animals that express a clear character, which now since the 70s we've been able to call that personality, although sometimes I feel a little uncomfortable calling it personality versus character, because I can relate to that let's say, what might look like embarrassment or un social uncertainty, it might help me think more about what they're experiencing. There's been some good studies showing that different matriarchs will respond differently to a call that would be considered dangerous or not so much with an experienced matriarch. So a new wary matriarch, she might make more conservative, cautious decisions, whereas a very wise, older matriarch, she's very mellow, and she said, ah, oh, this isn't a problem, this isn't, you know, so Karen McComb did some nice playback studies to show that um, there really are diff character differences between matriarchs and how they respond to, to potentially dangerous uh, situations. And what I've seen and appreciated in my own work is that I can see those character difference in the elephant subjects that I study and how they, they sometimes respond, well, they often respond in a way I would predict, but it's also a good reason to have blind observers and just show that the statistics pan out. Mm -hmm. And what surprises me sometimes is the durability of character. And it shouldn't be surprising at all because it's the same in humans. But that durability of character can also change pretty dramatically under certain conditions. So when we uh, lost a dominant male elephant, there was a scramble in our 2011 season as to who was going to be the next dominant bull. And suddenly some characters shift, shifted. There were two very aggressive bullies, and I say aggressive bullies because I've measured over the years, are they more likely to have exhibit aggressive behaviors or affiliative behaviors? And they're almost always by default aggressive. But in this scenario, they had to become a diplomatic. They had to bring others under their wing, and they were a lot more solicitous, a lot more affiliative. So it's very similar to human behavior. And, and exciting and just, you know, you need to set up your parameters so that you're measuring these behaviors. It's fun to anthropomorphize and I think it, it helps people 
remember certain individuals, but also really important to keep that distance so that you can say, look, this individual has a durability of character and it switches under certain environmental conditions. Hmm. So in 2007, you published a paper where you argue that elephants use specialized mechanoreceptors in their feet called, and help me with the name of this, piscinian. Yeah, to detect these uh, seismic waves. And and you also were mentioning earlier about how they also have uh, these large middle ear bones called the malleus, which can help detect these kinds of low frequency vibrations. So do you have an hypothesis about how these two systems work together in the brain? Well, there are two pathways to process vibrations, and one is through bone conduction. So elephants uh, freeze often, and if you freeze, you really can focus on the movement of the malice. And it's kind of like, I don't know, sitting on a, a stereo speaker, but the bone conduction is then going through your whole body. But there, there's a difference between uh, whether the sound passes through your bones from your feet up to your ear bones and sends a signal to the brain, or if you just cut the ear out altogether and there's nerves from the piscinian corpuscles, mycinar corpuscles in the elephant's feet and trunk that also send a nerve impulse to the somatosensory cortex signaling a vibration. So there's two different pathways that any mammal can use to process uh, vibrations and the elephant has both avenues and actually very well suited to uh, bone conducted hearing because they have such large malleus relative to body size and one of its closest relatives has the largest malleus body size and that's the golden mole in the Namib desert. There have been a lot of good studies on which pathway might be used under what conditions and there's a lot of work done on the blind mole rat and trying to figure out which they use more preferentially and you know that's a that's an avenue very difficult avenue for us to try and pursue what what we've done is just to show that both pathways exist we've done the anatomy to to show that both pathways exist very well for the elephant and we've tried to do some playback studies to try and understand whether whether they might use one preferentially to the other so we've we've done some airborne and groundborne playbacks and okay are they preferring the airborne signal first are they freezing and and assessing the ground first and then the air and then in the ground are they aligning themselves to give the greatest distance between their their malleae between their two ears or are they aligning themselves along the axis to give them more distance between their front and back feet and it looks as though preferentially they're lining themselves up to give the most distance between their ears but then that would imply that you could have localization discrimination between the two ears uh, with a ground signal. And that hasn't been shown yet. So that's kind of intriguing. We're still looking into that and trying to move the source to different places so that we can get rid of the variable that they might preferentially, for example, head west no matter what. If they, f- they feel a signal, they're going to assess it and they're going to face in the western direction. So anyway, we, we have um, some more studies to prove that, but I found some other questions more interesting because that one is it's something that's easier 
figured out in a lab environment. Yeah, yeah, certainly. You're not going to venture into the brain of a living elephant. Yeah. So in your postdoc, you seem to shift, at least temporarily shift fields quite dramatically, where you join Christopher Contag's lab in the Hansen Experimental Physics Laboratory. So first off, what made you decide to join an experimental physics lab? And you continued working on elephants during this period, but you, you did this very different thing for a while. Yes. Um, well, it looks different, but actually heat shock proteins is what I specialize in, express under acoustic stress and turn out to be an interesting model for understanding acoustic stress. So it was really a way for me to extend my capacity as an ecologist, behavioral ecologist. And I, you know, as I said, when I first went to Africa, I always intended to do molecular genetics, but I ended up going into the field and once you're in the field for that long it's you know it's like okay when am I going to go back and do my lab work all that you know molecular stuff that I really wanted to do well this was the opportunity to sort of fell in my lap uh, so I was really excited and and Chris Contag was such a wonderful person to work with because he's such a broad thinker and so supportive that what happened was I started out studying heat shock proteins and I um, focused on heat stress and burn questions relating to protein degradation. But I was able to pursue my interest in sound and acoustic stress and we did some ultrasound models. And then I developed a mouse that fluoresced and luminesced with a heat shock promoter. But in my studies, I got a grant to look at CFOS expression in the auditory cortex based on vibrotactile stimulation of mice and I deafened mice and did a whole study on vibrotactile, the vibrotactile sense uh, with an internal Stanford grant uh, and then got a BioX grant to continue with um, the field-based measurements of elephants. And so during the period where I really got my education on how to do some uh, cut and paste molecular <laughs> genetics, which was thrilling, I got to then re-steer my interest back into sound and the vibrotactile sense, which Chris um, supported. So that was really a wonderful opportunity. Hmm. So in addition to your scientific work, you've also co-founded a nonprofit organization dedicated to science education. I've written three popular science books about elephants, and according to your website, you've recently finished a novel aimed at inspiring girls who are interested in physics. Could you talk a little bit about your organization and why you think science education and communication being important to, to scientists? Because you've done a lot more work than in, in that regard than the, than the average scientist. What struck me originally about working with elephants in the field was not only all the wonderful things that I got to study about elephants, but that they were a real pain in the, in the behind to the people that had to live with them. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just had no idea that elephants could raid your cornfield and you'd be starving for the next year. <laughs> I thought that they were these amazing creatures that, you know, wandered around in the bush uh, remembering things, you know. <laughs> um, so I... That really, I had been interested in science education before that, but um, it struck me that people should understand what it means to conserve wildlife and all the politics, the human politics, and the uh, constraints that go with it. And that's been an ongoing side project, but it also has facilitated and motivated my 
interesting. I mean, now more than ever, it's an, it's important for scientists to be able to communicate with the general public, and we're not doing that great of a job at it. And that inspired me to start teaching science writing. I taught science writing for Stanford and for the New York Times, and it's uh, helped me be a better writer by you know practicing what I preach or trying to practice what I preach. But it's um, been really inspiring to me to help other scientists become better communicators and and how to communicate really complex ideas to the public is not simple and it's not easy and it can be very intimidating and so that has been motivating and exciting when you mentioned getting girls interested in physics as a as a woman in science especially um, doing a little bit of physics or it's um you know, if you don't have a role model, it's very difficult to, you know, try and imagine yourself. Oh, I'm getting worked up. Oh. <laughs> um, I, so I, I, I got excited to get girls interested in the hard sciences because there's no reason why they shouldn't be there. And I got this idea that girls might be, or, or how to get kids excited about science. I mean, there's so many exciting things, and that's one of the things that got me interested in entomology to begin with, was that childlike enthusiasm for the miniature and the unknown. And it struck me when I was a postdoc, you know, where women are headed in science, and there's a lot of postdocs in the the biological sciences that were women, but then there's a big gap between that next phase and that's been you know there's been some good attention focused on that but I thought if I start young in the middle grades sort of the YA young adult to get girls interested in physics through an interesting engaging character kind of superhero sort of model and really put a lot of hard science into stories, storytelling. And, you know, I have to say that I have been trying to do that for years, putting real hard scientific concepts into engaging stories. And I've been sometimes disappointed at people trying to remove those elements, thinking they're a distraction. Um, But then I've fortunately been very lucky to have editors that see a vision for that and, and keep those things in there because people will remember those things and they'll pick up on them, they'll get interested, they'll start doing further research and have it ingrained in their culture. So the book is has uh, it reveals the physics of the electromagnetic spectrum within a story. And you know, I, I'm really appreciating a lot more these days uh, hard sci-fi, which I never used to read, my husband does, but I, I understand why this is really an important mechanism for delivering science in an engaging way. Hmm. You're not actually physically located in Stanford all the time, so I'm not sure you were at the at the talk. But there was a, a researcher who was here recently talking about gender bias in science. The first author of the paper. I don't know if you saw the paper about. I saw. I saw the paper, but I didn't get to see the. Speaker. Yeah, no, I mean it was amazing. It was completely standing room only in in the, mm-hmm. in the Clark Center. And we had a fascinating conversation with her afterwards, and she was saying how it was really unclear exactly how to go about addressing this problem and at what scale of culture and what time in the culture is really most critical. Yeah, no, I wish I could have could have been there. It is a very tricky um, question. A lot of it has to do with how we uh, see family and what sacrifices are made within the family and, and what's culturally acceptable, what we've grown up with, what uh, financial constraints and 
who might likely make more money, and there's all kinds of issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and your comments about the difficulty of combining hard science with uh, good stories or things that come up at Neurite meetings, our science communication group here at Stanford all the time. I think it's a really, really critical thing for scientists to be thinking about, and I think we could really make a huge difference, but we do have to change our thinking, and science has to become more of a story than than it is in our, in our minds it's a story, but it's not obvious to everyone else. No, if you, and, if you and, read a paper, it doesn't really read like a story. <laughs> yeah, you're really translating something, and it's a translational challenge. Yeah, and so in, in closing, we like to do a, a series of uh, short answer questions, which are designed to be more entertaining than anything else. So first, what is your favorite fact about elephants? Oh my gosh, I, I wow. Um... What's my favorite fact? Or what's the first fact that pops mm. in your head when I ask that um, question? Because often, <laughs> often you get into this, this sort of existential crisis of, well, there's this one. Is it better than that one? I don't know. I know. That's a very difficult question. Um, oh, gosh. Um, that they're curious. Mm. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a graduate student, like yourself in particular, not a graduate student in general, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> Oh, dear. As a graduate student, okay, there's different stages of life. Huh? Yeah. Um, hmm. Okay. Take more statistics. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, finally, if you can ask an elephant one question, and either a generic elephant or maybe one particular elephant uh, who you know, and uh, if you could ask this elephant one question and they'd be able to respond to you in English, what question would you ask? Oh, Oh my goodness! I have to pick one. <laughs> okay, again, we can get we can go with the first thing in your head rather than. Uh, <laughs> well, Greg, where the heck are you? That's one question for our <laughs> dominant bull. Um, but I guess I would ask him if he cognitively makes the decision to be a leader that has a carrot and stick. Huh. <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor O'Connell Rodwell. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Great, great. And uh, thank you all for listening. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Camille Ergabil, a professor of neuroscience and the director of the Center of Magnetic Resonance Research at the University of Minnesota. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neurightwest.org. Mm-hmm.